following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Well, good morning. My name is Ash Simpson. I am an MC leader here. I've been coming to this church for about six years or so, coming up on now. And uh, Sam has a few weeks off here as they just welcomed a new baby. You can see him holding the new baby back there this morning. So make sure you wish him well and uh, reach out to them, see how you can love and serve them during this time. But I'm super excited to be up here this morning. I'm also super excited that baseball is back in swing. There it is. I knew that would get a reaction out of some people. Uh, Especially after a short season last year and the travesty of the L.A. Dodgers winning the World Series. Nobody likes that. Right, Ty? Anyways, uh, you probably can't tell by looking at me now, but uh, I actually used to be a baseball player uh, ever since I was about knee-high to a grasshopper all the way through high school. I loved playing baseball. My position of choice was first base, and that was mostly... uh, just by design, because I didn't have much of an arm. I couldn't make the throw from third base to first base. And uh, I also wasn't a good hitter. All right, I wasn't a good baseball player, but I was a baseball player nonetheless. I really, um, one of the reasons I wasn't very good at hitting was because I really got nervous in the clutch. And if you don't know what that means, it's when the game's on the line or when something's going on, this high pressure, I would just shut down. I would break down immediately. I really cared a lot what my teammates thought about me. I cared a lot what people in the stands thought about me, what my family who was watching, what they thought about me. And so every time pressure was on, don't put Ash up the bat. That was the rule. Well, um, I want to tell you a story about a game that I was in, but I need to preface this by telling you that everything I'm about to tell you is 100% true. And this is not because you wouldn't believe me, but because I have a hard time believing it myself sometimes, and I was a part of it. So we were in the bottom of the ninth inning when there was two outs, two runners on the base, and I was up to bat. So what this meant is that if I scored, I would be the winning run. Uh, But it also meant uh, that if I screwed up, the game was over because we were down by two. So, excuse me. So I get up to bat, and I am literally shaking like a leaf at this point. I mean, this is the most high-pressure situation ever. So you're probably thinking I'm about to do something pretty heroic, right? All right, so I'm up at bat. One ball comes by, and I just walk it. Strike one. Second ball. All right, this one's mine. Swing, and I missed it. Strike two. At this point, there's two outs. I mean, this is, this is all or nothing right here. So the ball comes down. Third ball. Swing, and I literally missed it. But wait. Look back, and the catcher has actually dropped the ball. So what this means is that it's a drop third strike, which means I can now take off running towards first. That's immediately what I did. I take off running towards first, catcher picks up the ball, throws it to first, way overthrows the guy. So they're telling me, go to second. So I'm like, all right, I'm running off to second. Guy at first base tries to throw to home plate to get the other two guys out. He misses. They both score. So at this point, I am running like a bat out of Hades trying to get to third base. Catcher takes the ball, throws it to third base, and would you believe it, overthrows the guy at third base. So I start taking off towards home plate. My teammates are screaming at me to slide. So I slide down into home plate, look up, and the umpire calls it safe. 
I literally scored an inside-the-park home run on a drop third strike. (laughs) True story. You wouldn't believe it unless you were there. So my team is going absolutely crazy at this point because not only was it inside-the-park home run on a drop third strike, it was a walk-off inside-the-park home run on a drop third strike. We literally just won the game off of that play. So in that moment, I am feeling like an absolute champion. Like all of those strikeouts, all of the failures that I had had before no longer matter because I just scored the game running run even though it literally had nothing to do with my ability. (laughs) I was just running as fast as I could. See, uh, those strikeouts didn't matter to me anymore and let alone the strikeout that actually caused the winning because I felt redeemed. And so that's really what Paul is going to be talking about in these verses that we just heard Carrie read. Redemption, it means to be freed by a price. And so in this case, the price that was paid was the catcher dropping the ball and the about 10 subsequent errors that followed after that. They paid that price so that I could come out as a victorious player. I think if we think about it, we all have something that we need to be redeemed from. Probably not baseball anymore for most of us. But we have this deep longing, and all of our screw-ups and all of our failures, we know where we're falling short of the mark. And we feel like there's something, something needs to be made right in this case. And it's, it's why in the pastoral welcome that Trent read this morning, every week, for those who see the brokenness in the world and long for things to be made right, we all have this need for something that's not quite clicking to be made right. So I want to ask you this morning, what is it that you need to be redeemed from? What do you feel like you're falling short of the mark? Maybe you're bad at your job, it's not really working out for you, or you've had some failed friendships, some failed relationships along the way, people that you've lost touch with. Or perhaps it's just a general lack of direction with your life. You don't really know what the point of all this is. So in these verses today, Paul is going to walk us through exactly what ultimate redemption is, the type of redemption that is final and it is once and for all. It's the type of redemption where a price had to be paid, but we weren't the ones that had to pay it. And ultimately, it's the type of redemption that restores everything back to the way that it should be, and our souls can truly be satisfied, redeemed by the Son to the Father for the kingdom. So let's pray, and then let's dive in this morning. God, I pray that your Spirit would be filling this room, that you would just be speaking through my mouth and my vocal cords and just helping me to say the things that uh, you want us to hear this morning and filter out the stuff that uh, doesn't really apply. And uh, God, I just pray that you would be glorified this morning, your name would be magnified, and that you would shine bright here today. The cross would stand in all of its glory, and that we could see our brokenness in front of that and feel a call to be redeemed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week we heard Corey preach on adoption, and he preached on how we've been grafted into the family of God by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And this week we're going to talk about what that sacrifice meant and why God chose to even make that sacrifice for us in the first place. But we're going to work through it backwards. So I just said that uh, we're redeemed by Christ to God for the kingdom, but we're going to work in reverse order here this morning, switching things up. Redeemed for the kingdom to God by Christ. 
So here, uh, let's take a look at our Bibles in verses 7 through 10. Uh, Verses 3 through 14 are actually one giant run-on sentence. 202 words. There's no commas. There's no periods. There's no separation in there. Paul is just spitting fire like you wouldn't believe. I like to imagine that as he's writing these words, the pen is literally starting to catch on fire because he's just writing so furiously all of these gospel truths. Everything that you need to know about God, his story, and his plan are all wrapped up right here in these 11 verses, especially what redemption is and why we so desperately needed it. So redemption literally means to be released by payment or freed by ransom. So that's the definition of it. I think we've all heard redemption thrown a lot around a lot in either culture, TV, movies, or even in church. But what it literally means is to be released by a payment. And Paul, he's sitting here writing these words from the inside of a jail cell. He's writing about redemption while he himself is a captive. Now, the reason that Paul has the audacity to be able to do this is because Paul's identity was so secure that even though he was a prisoner for Christ, he knew that he was free in Christ. His circumstances of being in jail and being captive were overruled by who he was in Christ. That was his bigger identity. So last week was all about the joy of adoption and the riches that we get from God through what Christ did, but now we get to see why God even wanted to give all this in the first place and why it made Paul so secure in his identity that he could shout the joy of God even from the inside of a jail cell. So let's start at verse 9 through 10. I told you we were working backwards. It says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In the original Greek here, you can see the word purpose in verse 9, and that actually can be translated also as good pleasure. So what Paul is telling us here is that it was God's good pleasure. He enjoyed it, being able to redeem his people and to unite things to himself. I think in a lot of mainline non-denominational Christianity, we often hear this narrative of how much God needs you and, and how much God you know, wants you. And, and that part of that is true. God loves you and he wants you to be part of his kingdom. But the fact of the matter is God is perfectly happy in himself and the Trinity and the Holy Spirit with Christ. So the story isn't about God's need to redeem you back to himself, but it's about his good pleasure to do so. And it's about an overflow of grace and mercy and goodness and love and all these characteristics and all these aspects of God that he could not possibly act apart from because it's just who he is. His motivation was simply that, the fact that he is a good and loving father and he created this world to be one of vitality and one of flourishing. Back in Genesis, uh, it says that Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. We hear that, we're like, oh, that's pretty neat. But I want you to think about it for a moment. Can you imagine what it would be like for the God of the universe to be walking right next to you, having a casual conversation? In our sinfulness, we couldn't even stand next to God. We wouldn't be able to bear it. But 
in the garden as the way things were meant to be. Heaven and earth were united in this beautiful and unique way in which they were both mutually beneficial. God enjoying his creation and creation enjoying God. It was this beautiful harmony of creator and creation. Uh, Ever since I've gotten to know AJ over there a little bit more, uh, I've started to pay a little more attention to kind of the details and the precision of things that are made in high design. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, he shared on his Facebook around Christmas, but there was like a, was a $250 salt shaker. It looked like a contact case. But as you start to, to notice some of these things, you know, or furniture like at the Rust Belt in East Moline, that's the workbench for $2,000, You pay attention to these details and you see the care and precision with which they were made. And it was that care and that precision that just causes their value to just soar. I'm not talking about just a big box couch from Costco or that bookshelf from Ikea that you can't seem to put right, so it's a little... You see, the appreciation for these things, these high design things, is something that was made in us from the beginning. To see something made with intention and care is built into the fundamentals of how we were created. God made us to appreciate the beauty of something that was created well because everything he made was created good. In fact, the the Bible says it was made very good. You see, God was at the pinnacle of high design when he created the earth and the humans to inhabit it. And we've been trying to create AI and robots and cloning and searching for life on other planets for decades and decades and centuries, if you include witchcraft. But God, he did it with a word. Just like that, everything was made. Everything was created in that moment to belong to God and to reside with him in this just beautiful harmony of mutual benefit. But if you'll notice the world around us now, that's not quite what it looks like. There's a lot of hurting, a lot of people who are upset and in pain. There are problems all around us with corruption and addiction and everything in between. So something went wrong. And the problem wasn't a flaw in the design, but the problem was with us and how we appreciated God's creation over the creator himself. We saw creation, and we wanted to be gods of it. It wasn't enough for us to have dominion. We wanted to rule. Adam and Eve wanted to be like gods, so they ate the fruit. And now you and I, we want to be gods of our own world, so we cut throats to get ahead. We hoard as many things and as good as we possibly can. And then we try to make everyone think how great we are just so we can feel some sense of self-esteem. The same story being played out all from Genesis to today. We weren't satisfied with the Creator, so we chose creation instead. But God, in the fact that He is good and loving, wants to restore creation. That's what Paul is talking about here. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. But what that meant is that it had to be first redeemed. That God had to redeem us back to himself. So I asked this question at the beginning, but I want to ask it again. Where do you see the need to be redeemed in your life? 
Maybe you've gone through a bitter divorce. Or you've been fired from a job. Maybe multiple jobs. Or the relationships in your life. You've hurt some people. You've said some stuff that you regret. Now you've lost those friends. I think if we're honest with ourselves, deep down inside, we all have something we know is missing. Something that needs to be redeemed. And that is why it is such a beautiful thing that we attain for. Because it takes what was deemed unworthy and it gives it worth. One of the things that uh, I love about my wife is that if you've ever seen any type of mainstream popular movie, she's never seen it. So what that means is I get to go back and watch all these awesome movies all over again and I get to enjoy them and I get to watch her watch them for the first time. Recently we got on the conversation of Sylvester Stallone and so I showed her uh, the scene in Rocky where he's doing his training montage. I mean, this is one of the greatest bits of cinema ever and actually informed the way that cinema would be created from there on out. Anytime you ever see a training montage, it started with Rocky. The music, it gets you pumped up. So in this story, I'm assuming most people have seen it, but if not, you have Rocky. He works at a meat plant in Philadelphia and he spends his weekends getting beat up for chump change and also flirting with Adrian in the pet store. He's a nobody. He's just this poor Italian guy from the streets of Philadelphia until one day he gets the opportunity of a lifetime to fight in the ring with Apollo Creed. Pro-life tip. If anybody names Apollo Creed wants to fight you, I do not recommend that. But he gets the chance and he takes it. And if you haven't seen the movie, you're thinking, oh, well, obviously he's going to win. Well, spoiler alert, he actually loses the fight. But... The story wasn't about whether he won or whether he lost. In the end, he gets to show Adrian that he can be somebody, that he's not just a nobody from the streets. And so he gets to marry her, and then he gets to win the fight in the rematch in Rocky II. You see this, and what this movie is telling you is getting you jacked, and it's saying, hey, you can have that type of redemption as well. You can climb your Philadelphia courthouse steps, and you can beat the Apollo creeds in your life. We see that, and we just get pumped in thinking that we can do that too. When you take a closer look at the story, you see that if redemption literally means to be freed by ransom or released by payment, that it costs something. So in this case, the cost was Rocky's extreme blood loss, endless sweat, broken noses, and probably some long-term brain trauma. But in order to redeem our own story, what's it going to cost you? First and foremost, I think probably going to cost your time. If you're off chasing some wild dream, it's time away from your family. It's time away from doing good works to make this world a better place. Probably going to cost you money and resources as well. You're going to have to give everything you have to this dream in order to hopefully feel like you made it in some way. And then the relationship. Who did you have to hurt to get where you want to go? Co-workers? Maybe it was men and women in your life that you've given yourself to physically and just left because you didn't find what you were hoping for. Maybe it's your family, neglecting to love them well, 
in exchange for the pursuit of something else. You see, in all of these cases, in all of these things, in these ways we try to make a name for ourselves, we are trying over and over and over, pounding the pavement, but all the way is just chipping away at our hearts and our souls, trying to fit this square peg in this round hole where God is supposed to be in our heart. Before we can understand and embrace who God made us to be, we have to first accept our identity apart from Him. You see, it's not merely just accepting the truth about Jesus as our Savior, but it's also accepting the truth about ourselves as needy sinners. If we look at verse 8, it says, "...which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight." God is giving us the wisdom and insight to see the glory of his plan, the glory of how he designed things and the way that the world should be made right, but he's also giving us the wisdom and the insight to see where we fall short of that. The fact of the matter is, we're not Rocky. I think we're a lot more like Adrian. She literally does nothing in this movie, but she still gets to share in the riches of Rocky's success. Yo, Adrian! had to do it once. Uh, my freshman year of college, I, I believed in God. I believed there was a God, but I really had no idea, no framework for who that God was, what my sin nature was like, or what being saved really meant, or I mean, why I even needed it in the first place. I went through the motions of going to church like I had always done my whole life. I go to church on Sundays, I go to Bible studies in the middle of the week, and I'm really just trying to put the best image forward that it was possible, but it was all fake. I would go out one night and be getting drunk with my friends, and the next night I'd be at Bible study, pretending like everything was hunky-dory, or waking up on Sunday morning for church, nice and hungover. And the cycle, week in and week out, would repeat itself over and over and over again. I was fooling around with my girlfriend at the time, as I had done with the girlfriend before her as well. And then my Bible study leader, towards my second semester, he knew none of this, but he came up to me and he asked me if I wanted to spend my summer in Santa Cruz, California. He said, you get to go out there, you get to hang out on the beach, you get to work on the boardwalks, on your days off, you get to go play and ride rides all the time, and you'll make some money and probably learn a thing or two about this Jesus guy along the way. Now, to any 18-year-old, that sounds like the dream. I was like, all right, I'm in, bro. I need to make money anyways. How, can I, how quick can I get out there? So I get out there, and uh, immediately uh, we start forming relationships with the other people that are on this summer project with crew. And I get paired with uh, six other guys from all across the country. Uh, six of us lived in one room. Another guy was part of our group, lived with his wife somewhere else. So we had Six smelly, gross dudes in this little motel in Santa Cruz, California, and we're literally sleeping on three high makeshift bunk beds out of plywood. They weren't safe, but nobody got hurt, thankfully. Now, we get out there, and in order for us to, to get to know each other, we participate in this thing called Soul to Soul. It's a lot like what we do here at Sacred City Church of sharing our stories with each other. It's basically a way of telling each other everything we've ever done in our life, everything we've ever struggled with, the, the good stuff as well, the things that we're really good at, the things where 
we're definitely falling short, and all of this is so we can get to know each other a little bit better, just get to know and understand how each of us operates so that we can point to why Jesus would be good news to that other person. So I'm one of the last ones to go, and I am, at this point, absolutely floored by the things that these guys are sharing. I am dumbfounded. These guys are telling me things that they've done, rotten and sinful and evil things that they've done in their lives. And I'm thinking to myself, who in the world would be crazy enough to share that with somebody? This is stuff that's supposed to stay hidden in the dark. And I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, I hope they don't expect me to do this. So I'm coming up with this plan in my head of how to gloss over all the nasty and ugly and sinful stuff that I've done in my life and just focus on some of the minor areas, you know, like, I don't care what people think too much. That was my biggest sin in my mind at that time. My sin nature in that moment wanted to stay hidden because it was afraid of what the light would reveal. We're sitting in this little burger joint in California called Burger. It's really original. Californians, man. And in that moment, uh, it was my turn to share. And we're sitting there, and I'm eating um, a burger with a weight number with Andre the Giant's face on it. It was all mugshots from celebrities with your order ticket. And we're sitting there, and Andre the Giant didn't overcome me, but the Holy Spirit did. Something hit me like a ton of bricks. After hearing these guys' stories and seeing what God had done in their lives, I just start talking, and I'm spilling everything. I mean, everything that I had ever done, things that I had never told anyone in my whole life, things that I had been trying to stuff down and keep hidden away that was dark, the bad, and definitely, definitely all of the ugly. I finished by explaining to these guys that I am just so ashamed of these things that I'd done, that I knew that they were wrong, but I still did them anyways because I didn't care because I enjoyed it. And one of the leaders, his name was Daniel, a Louisiana boy, he looked at me and he said, Ash, do you know that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover everything you've ever done? And when I tell you in that moment, sitting in that booth in public with six guys that were way cooler than me, that I broke down like a little baby. The waterworks were on and I was crying my eyes out and I did not even care because in that moment, all of the shame that I had been holding on to for so long was gone. In an instant, it went away. It was lifted from me. I recognized that I was a needy sinner, and instantaneously, I tasted the sweet waters of redemption. I didn't ask Jesus into my heart. I didn't do anything extra special or supernatural. I didn't pay penance for all of the ways that I had messed up in the past. Jesus immediately took everything away that had ever been entangling me in my life because that's who God is, and that's the character and his nature. You see, no matter how hard I had tried to create this amazing world for myself, with all of these friends who thought I was great, with girlfriends who loved me, and all of the pleasures and all of the thrills that this world had to offer, I still recognized that I was coming up short. I recognized that I was empty, and it was at that point where God stepped in, and he met me. Later on in chapter 2, as we continue through the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to tell us that we were dead in our trespasses. It's not like I was just guilty, convicted, and just 
you know, sitting there stuck in my trespass. I just need a little leg up to get out. No, Scripture says we were dead. You see, it's not just feelings of guilt and shame that we're trying to run away from, but it's something real and something tangible. The condemnation that we are saved from. A dead man caught in his sin cannot be in the presence of a holy and just God. As a matter of fact, you are separated from him for all of eternity. And all of his holiness and righteousness, he cannot be in the presence of sin. It would be too much to handle and you would burn up in an instant. So this means that in order to make our way back to God, to make our way back to the way that he had designed everything, there had to be a price paid. There had to be redemption. Someone had to pay that price on our behalf because I can tell you right now from my experience, no matter how many times I had tried to find it, I kept screwing it up. Look at verse 7. Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Guys, if redemption comes at a price, then the price of our transgressions, of our sin, was Jesus' blood. This is the point. This is the mystery that it talks about in verse 9 revealed to us. This is the gospel. The fullness of time in these verses isn't just talking about a before and after time, but it's timeline, but it is talking about the absolute climax of the story where Jesus lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we deserved on our behalf. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very last drop and he satisfied it. And then he removed it from us and resurrected again three days later. Can you say amen? It is a beautiful and amazing thing that he would give his blood for our life. And that would be enough. But God doesn't stop there. His grace and his mercy never stops. And he doesn't leave us there. Redemption is actually threefold. You see, we were redeemed once and for all with Christ's resurrection. We are being redeemed currently in all of our faults and all of our failures and ways we struggle to look more like Christ. And then one day, one day we're going to be completely and totally redeemed with new bodies and the new heavens and the new earth where there is no more pain, no more sin, and no more death. We are redeemed from that guilt of sin. We are also redeemed from a futile way of living. This is what happened uh, throughout the Gospels when Jesus would heal blind men. He would always tell them to go rub mud on their eyes, and then they would go to the well, and they would wash it off. And then whenever that mud was washed off, they could see. And they could finally see for the first time. And what this meant was that they no longer had to live as blind men in the first century, which at that time, it meant you sat on the side of the road and prayed someone gave you food or money. There's a lot of technology to help blind people these days, but back then, all you could do was sit on the side of the road. And now they could see. So not only did they have their sight, but they were redeemed from this futile way of living. And every time he healed someone, it was always prefaced first by forgiving their sins. You see, one day we are going to be fully physically healed in those new bodies. But the process of redemption doesn't have to wait. It starts now. God is already working out redemption and will continue to work out redemption in your life throughout the rest of it. 
You see, just like Jesus illuminated the eyes of the blind men when they washed the mud off, when he redeems us, he illuminates the sins and trespasses in our life that right now are literally killing us. It says it right here in the text. It says, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Or like I said earlier, his good pleasure. If you are in Christ, the wisdom and insight allow you to see what God has been working from Genesis and will continue to work all throughout the book of Revelation. But if I'm sitting up here talking and it's just going in one ear and out the other and it makes no sense, you need to ask yourself if you've ever really tasted the sweet waters of redemption. The sweet riches of his grace that these scriptures say that he lavished on us. You see, the fact of the matter is you could know your Bible well. I knew my Bible very well. I did Awana and RAs and all that kind of stuff growing up in the church. You could attend church regularly. I attended church multiple times a week my entire life. And you can even have all the right answers and know exactly what to say. That is exactly where I was at. But if you cannot see why you need to be redeemed and how responding to that grace by living your life according to God's law is good for you, then your heart is probably still hard and you still have those scales over your eyes. And the thing about God is, is that you are free. He allows you to be free to keep living in that ignorance. But I'm here this morning to tell you that that's an empty life. I experienced it for myself and it is going to literally cost you your soul to afford to pay the price for that kind of life. I saw this video of a sheep making the rounds on Facebook recently. There's a, a sheep stuck in a ditch, probably about this wide. Some of you might have already seen it. Uh, and this, it's just perfectly wedged in there. So this kid comes along, grabs the sheep, he pulls it out. The sheep is just so excited, so happy. He takes off running, and then 10 feet later, back in the ditch. <laughs> right back in, immediately. That is what our life is like when we don't have redemption. We just keep falling into the ditch. But the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to fall into that ditch anymore. That not only did Jesus rescue us from that ditch, but he took us and he carried us into safety inside the borders of his earthly kingdom. The goal of God isn't just saving you from punishment but it is renewing everything and uniting it together in that kingdom. Just as God can't act apart from his righteousness and his justice, neither can he act apart from his grace and his love, which was fulfilled in Christ. Guys, it's, it's talking about the plan and the purpose. God's plan and God's purpose and his good pleasure is Christ in us uniting all things to himself. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the pinnacle of this story. He is the absolute climax, and the church, we get to be his hands and feet who continue to do that good work of uniting all things to himself while we're here on this earth. So Christ in us means we have the power to therefore live as a changed people who live on, in community and on mission together to the world around us. If you have been given that new life, if you've been given a new identity in Christ, then this whole story and narrative, 
you can now see that it was about God and it was about the good work that he has done. It wasn't about us. God no longer sees a dead man walking when he looks at you anymore. He sees Jesus and he is satisfied. Jesus is the subject of these verses, plain and simple. But the beauty and the richness of his grace is that we still get to enjoy the benefits that overflow from it. We have a new self, we have a new identity, and a new citizenship in the kingdom of God here on earth. And this is what it means. It means we were dead, and now we're alive. We were ruled by spiritual evil, and now we share in Jesus' rule over spiritual evil. We were once objects of wrath, but now we are objects of God's affection. We were walking in darkness, but now we are dancing in marvelous light. And we were destined for hell, but now we are seated in heaven with Christ. Guys, this new identity is where you get the strength and the wisdom and the insight to do the good work that God has called you to do. When those scales get removed from your eyes, you're now able to see the world and its brokenness for what it is. You see hurting and others for what it is. It's sin and it's heart issues. Your neighbor who likes to boast about all of his possessions, we now see him as a needy sinner who's taking pride and in his insecurity to find his identity in things. And so we bring him the good news of a better identity. For all of your bitter and your angry coworkers, you can now see that they're probably someone who's just hurting. And you now have the opportunity to show them the hope of hurting no more. And then our brother and sister in Christ who continues to stumble over and over and over in the same sin, we see that their hard heart is valuing, once again, creation over creator. And in love, we can guide them back to taste the sweet water of redemption once again. Because like these verses said, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He doesn't stop. As we close here this morning, you have to ask yourself, if you are not motivated to do the work that God has called you to, do you really believe in the new identity that God has given you? Or are you still worshiping his creation over the creator? God didn't just redeem us once and for all and leave us there. He's better than that. And there is grace and mercy abundant every time we come to him. He is lavishing that upon us, the riches of his grace. And once and for all, we can say that Christ is still seated in heaven, which means that redemption will not come to an end until that moment when all things physically and all things spiritually are redeemed once and for all in the new heavens and the new earth as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. As we come to the table now this morning to receive the Lord's Supper, it's just a reminder of that redemption that we received. We get to come back to Christ and we get to ask him to do the good work in us and use us to fulfill his purpose here on this earth for his good pleasure and ours as well. This morning, if you haven't received Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't take these elements. Take Christ instead. Go to the source 
redemption. Go to the source and receive his goodness in your heart and let the scales be lifted from your eyes as we rejoice with you in that. Dear God, we thank you so much for that redemption, for the fact that we were broken and we were needy and a price had to be paid, God. We, we know that your creation is tempting and that often in our life that we desire that and we value that over how much we value you. But God, I pray this morning that your spirit, even as we leave, would continue to be on work, doing its work in our hearts to help us to see those places where we need you to come. and We need you to fill that hole in our heart and fill yourself with it and let us rejoice in getting to be a part of that plan with you. In Jesus' name, we pray.